Our Father and Son and Holy Spirit, we come to you. We know that you are here, that you have promised your presence where your people gather, and even to be with us at this moment where your word is open. We pray, Holy Spirit, who inspired these words, that you would come and give life and power to its reading, hearing, and preaching, so that we might believe it <clears throat> and that we might be drawn to Christ, who is the source of life. The promise of life is right there in Jesus Christ. Help us to receive it today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most iconic moments in Olympic history was in the 1992 Barcelona Olympics. It was in the 400-meter race ran by a man named Derek Redmond. Even if that name doesn't immediately come to mind and you don't recall it, you will undoubtedly perhaps remember it when you see a picture. I, I think we have one. If you remember that moment, you remember perhaps that Derek Redmond was one of the favorites to win the 400 meter that year. He had broken all kinds of world records before, and if you remember the race, the gun goes off, and Redmond gets off to an amazing start. But about 15 seconds into the race, he later described that he had heard a pop. His hamstring had snapped, and there he collapsed to the floor and lay there writhing and agonizing in pain. If you remember the moment, he says later that while he was lying there, he suddenly recalled that he was at the Olympics. He was running in the quarter or semifinals at that moment, and so he decided that he needed to try to finish, and so he rose to his feet and crawled and got up, and if you remember, begins to hobble and, and limp towards the finish line. And that's when, out of nowhere, suddenly an older man, unbeknownst to anyone else, emerged onto the track. He had pushed past security, ran into the middle of the track, and suddenly came all the way to Derek. And Derek later recalled that he felt the presence of someone near him until the familiar hand of his father reached over his shoulder. And the image that's then been burned into our collective mind is of a father walking his son towards the finish line. A dad walking his son towards the finish line. Derek Ridman didn't finish in the top three that year. He didn't win any medals. He didn't break any records. In fact, he finished dead last. But he finished. He finished. He didn't quit. He didn't give up. He didn't bail. Crawling, hobbling, limping even at times, carried out by the encouragement and support of his father, he finished. A father walking his son towards the finish line. That's the image that I want you to have in the back of your mind as we begin together reading through this book of the Bible called 2 Timothy. It's Paul's second letter. And today, Sabma Road, we're starting a new sermon series. We're going to look for the several weeks into this letter written by the Apostle Paul. It's his second, and we might add, last letter, and this one addressed to Timothy, Paul's letter to Timothy. Now, if you were with us just a few weeks ago when we were working our way through the book of Acts, when we finished Acts, you might remember that we ended in chapter 28, and the apostle Paul had made it to Rome. That was the promise of God, that he would be his witness to the ends of the earth, and there Paul was in Rome. And if you remember in chapter 28, when Acts finishes, Paul is essentially under house arrest. 
It's not ideal to be in prison, but this is perhaps as good as it's going to get. He rented essentially a home. People could come in and out of that home while he was under Roman prison. And he could continue to proclaim the gospel freely. Well, it's believed by history and tradition that Paul likely was set free from that first imprisonment, that he continued to travel and do ministry, that he left younger ministers like Titus in Crete and Timothy in Ephesus, that he wrote letters to them, the ones that we have in the Bible, like Titus or 1 Timothy. And then at some point, history and tradition holds that Paul was likely re-arrested, again put into Roman prison, except that this second imprisonment was nothing like the first. And it's probably during this second and last final imprisonment that we get this letter addressed to Timothy. An imprisonment that was nothing like the first because this time Paul isn't renting an Airbnb. He is chained to a cold, dark dungeon wall. People aren't going in and coming out. In fact, in 1 verse 17, he'll say that it was with earnest and great effort that one of his friends finally found him. In chapter 2 verse 9, he'll tell us that he's suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. In chapter 4, he'll notify us that when his court date came, no one showed up in the courtroom. No one was there. In 4 verse 16, he says this, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. Here's the Apostle Paul. You think of this, this globetrotter, this world-renowned, traveling, church-planting evangelist. No one in the history of Christianity has done perhaps as much as this man, but when he comes to his end, he's deserted by everyone, left alone in a cold, dark cell. I mean, that's the details we get, deserted, Alone, even cold, in chapter 4, he'll tell Timothy, please, when you come, bring my cloak and do your best to arrive here before winter comes. Here's this legendary man, this unbelievable servant of God, and yet he comes to his end alone, deserted, cold. And if all of that were not enough, he is awaiting now death. You see, after his first imprisonment, he almost had this hope or expectation to be delivered. He wrote as much. But now, now his full expectation is that the only way he's getting out of this cell is in a coffin. In fact, that's why he pens perhaps these words you've heard before. They're famous to him. In chapter 4, verse 6 and 7, he says, The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And he goes on to say, and now there is waiting for me a crown, and not just for me, but all those who hope in God's appearing, in the reappearing of Jesus Christ. You see, he's he's at the end. It's almost like when we were in Acts, we heard the starting gun go off, and we saw Paul in his opening steps and strides. And we watched this young man at the time, and that's what he was, a young man. We saw a young man named Paul begin to run his race. And what a race it has been. What strides he took. The churches he planted. The gospel seed that was sown along the way as he ran. But now, in 2 Timothy, this is an elderly Paul nearing the end. Able to say, I have finished the race and fought the fight, and kept the faith. And now before Paul goes off to be with the Lord, 
and to receive the crown that Jesus has for him, his concern, as you'll see in this letter, is that the gospel of Jesus must continue to advance even after he's gone. That's what's weighing on his heart. He knows his end is near, and so the question that's brimming to the surface of his mind is, who's going to keep preaching? Who's going to keep this gospel advancing? Who's going to keep this thing going? And he's got good reason to worry about and be concerned about the continued spread of the gospel. It's because at that time there were a number of factors that would have caused him to be concerned for Christianity and the state of Christianity. For example, you should know his background that while he's writing 2 Timothy, the man sitting on the throne in Rome is an emperor named Nero. If you've heard that name before, you perhaps know the story of how Rome was set ablaze on fire and that the Christians of the empire were the scapegoats who were blamed for the fire. And so before you knew it, Christians were lit up like torches on the highway. Christians were fed to the beasts in the arena. There was great persecution from without the church, from outside the church. But what you should also know is that not only was there persecution from without, there were problems from within. In fact, you just have to read the four chapters of 2 Timothy, and you'll hear these problems surfacing. In chapter 1, in verse 15 itself, he says, Many in Asia have turned away. So in this church planting movement, all these little seedlings that he thought were growing up as Christians, they've deflected. Many have gone away, disaffiliated with Jesus and his church, no longer apart. They've turned away. In chapter 2, you'll hear him name names. For example, he'll speak of a heretic named Hymenaeus. If you've read the first letter to Timothy, Hymenaeus had already been a problem and had already been excommunicated from the church. And yet he reappears in 2 Timothy because this excommunicated man is still causing havoc and still causing trouble and through his false teaching is still troubling the faith of many. And so the problems are from without and from within. Danger on every side, so much so that one scholar and commentator said it seemed at the moment as if Christianity was on the verge of annihilation. Paul has good reason to wonder and worry in his soul, how will the gospel keep going? And who will keep preaching? I mean, these are the concerns. Danger from without and from within. It's sort of like this. This week I was skimming through a study put on by a group called the Pine Tops Foundation. And they had just released a study about the state of Christianity in America at this present moment, as you and I sit here now. This study just recently released said this, it's expected that about 35 million youths will disaffiliate or turn away from Christianity in the next 30 years. The study holds that about 35 million, that's more than a million per year, of little ones that grow up at the footsteps of these kinds of platforms, who have heard the gospel, who are familiar with the Bible, who have been in church all their lives, one million or more a year will start to disaffiliate. So that within the next 30 years, it's expected 35 million youths in America will be gone. Add to that, that it's expected that you'll find an overwhelming wave of older churches closing. Meaning right now there's about 3,500 churches that close a year. Within the next 5 to 10 years, that's estimated to jump up to 5,500 so that it will begin to eclipse the number of new churches getting started. 
meaning more churches closing than new churches getting started. You add to that also the ever-increasing population growth, and this study said that in the next 30 years, we need to see about 8,000 new churches started every single year, not to take ground, not to make an advance, but just to keep level, just to keep at status quo. 8,000 new churches a year in the next 30 years, that's 240,000 churches by the time some of our children are the age that we are right now. That's what needs to happen. That's the state that Christianity is. In fact, the quote that quote caught my eye in the study was this, the next 30 years will represent the largest missions opportunity in the history of America. Did you hear that again? If this study is right, it's saying the next 30 years will represent the largest missions opportunity in the history of America. Now, if you're an older Christian who's hearing that, and I know many older Christians who have heard this, what that does in your heart, in your soul, is cause a grave concern for the little ones that are coming up behind you for the ones that are seated on the floor of these steps. This great concern to do all that you can to ensure that the baton is smoothly and rightly transferred from us to sons and daughters coming after us. To say to these sons and daughters, don't quit. Don't bail. Don't walk out on Jesus or his church or missions or ministry. Endure. At whatever it takes, no matter what it costs, don't bail on Jesus. Don't bail on the gospel. Don't bail on missions and on ministry. And that's what Paul's doing here. He is concerned, though he's coming to the end of his own race, he is desperate to ensure that the baton is rightly handed to the young runner coming up behind him. To ensure that Timothy runs his race and finishes as well. That's the concern of this letter. One commentator named John Stott, he says, the message of 2 Timothy then can be summed up sort of like this. In chapter 1, it's guard the gospel that was entrusted to you. In chapter 2, it's suffer for this gospel that you have been given. In chapter 3, it's continue in this gospel that you believed. In chapter 4, it's proclaim this gospel so that others might believe it as well. There it is. It's all about the gospel about guarding this gospel and suffering for this gospel and continuing in this gospel and proclaiming this gospel. That's his burden. You see, Paul has run for Jesus at this point for 30 years. He's not a young man anymore like we first met him in Acts. When we first saw him in Acts 7 standing by Stephen's execution, if you remember, it was a young Paul. When we saw him in Acts 9 with all the vigor of youth, hell-bent on exterminating Christianity, papers in his hand to hunt and kill Christians. When we saw him then, he was a young man. Now, three decades has passed. Thirty years have gone by. And now Paul, an older man, is nearly done. The time of my departure has come. I have finished the race and fought the fight and kept the faith and now chained to a cold, dark dungeon on death row, awaiting his own execution, he writes this letter to his son in the faith. And Sevma Road, listen, you can be sure that when Timothy received this letter in Ephesus, it felt to him like a dad's arm around his shoulder. It felt to him like a dad had just come 
hobbling as he was, limping as he was, crawling as he was, to urge him to push on. Because Seven Mile Road, hear this, you can be sure that by this point, young Timothy had pulled some hamstrings of his own. You can be sure that in his soul, Timothy was fighting an ever-present temptation to quit. Because that's the way it is for gospel ministry. Not just for Timothy, but in every generation, there is always the temptation to bail, to be done, to quit. I mean, if you want to know, all you need to do is read 1 Timothy. Just skim through those six chapters and you will get a sense of what this young pastor was dealing with. Just read through 1 Timothy and you'll listen to what the pastorate for this young minister was. In 1 Timothy, you'll know that Timothy was assigned to a church where he had heretics to silence. And he had troublemakers to excommunicate. Quarrels to squelch. He had family members neglecting elderly relatives that he had to confront. He had materialistic rich folk in his church that he needed to charge them to stop being haughty and taught to share with their brothers and sisters. Moreover, he had an entire congregation that was always looking down on him because of his youth. And all of that was within the pews. Not to mention that when he took one step outside of the church gathering, he had a hostile city and a hostile world and a deadly enemy called Satan that always had a bullseye on his chest ready to take this young leader out. You can be sure there was always in the heart of this man this desire to do something else, anything else, to give his life to anything else because this was too much, to tap out, to bail, to quit on Jesus or ministry or find something else to do. And so the question is, what then will motivate this young minister? What then will motivate this gospel-believing worker? What will motivate Timothy to press on, to endure, what will cause him to, in fact, guard and suffer for and continue in and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection and soon return? What will ensure that this baton that Paul passed to Timothy would be passed out and down to the world and for generations to come? So just hear with me how Paul starts his letter as he seeks to motivate his son to endure. Let me have you hear again just the first five verses and hear with me again the opening words to Paul's last words, right? His opening charge in his final and closing letter. He says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Let me just make a couple of quick comments. Paul starts this letter with sort of his standard introduction. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. 
It's sort of this standard introduction to introduce himself, to remind his hearer that this is from Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, the question for us is, if he's penning a somewhat personal letter to Timothy, why the formality of this introduction? Why would he need to write to his son that this is Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus? Almost like Timothy's like Dory from Finding Nemo that just has temporary memory loss all the time. Who is that again, that Paul? Why this, this greeting, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, as though he might have forgotten? But it's sort of like this. It reminds me that, you know, at times when I'm talking to my kids, it's sort of that same exact thing. My kids have this habit of, of somewhat seeing my commands and interpreting them as suggestions. It's the oddest thing. You might have that as well. Like, I'm saying, come home and, or come inside, and they might think, Dad might like it if we come inside. Or stop fighting one another as a suggestion. Maybe Dad would be okay if we do, if we don't. And so what do I have to do? I literally have to say, hey, look at me. No, 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 look at me. And then when they do, I say, who am I? Why? Because they're Dory? No. But I need to remind them, who am I? And so then they literally have to go, your dad. That's right. I am not your friend from the playground. I'm not a peer. I'm not a buddy. If I'm writing a letter to you, this is from dad, who by the will of God is over you. That's, that'd be my introduction to my kids, right? That's sort of the same feeling here. This is Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. What's that? What's he saying? He just called himself an apostle. If you're familiar at all with the Bible, who are the apostles? The apostles were 12 men. It wasn't an open group. It was 12 specific men. Who were these men? They were men handpicked by Jesus. He had prayed a whole night and then named each one and commissioned them to be his apostles. These were men that spent time with Jesus, were trained by Jesus, taught by Jesus, done missions with Jesus, saw the miracles of Jesus, watched Jesus die, saw him rise from the dead, and then were commissioned by that Jesus to take his gospel out. Those were the apostles. And here's the thing. Paul wasn't there for any of that. He wasn't there the day they got chosen. He didn't spend time with Jesus, wasn't trained by Jesus, wasn't sent out by Jesus, wasn't there when Jesus died or when he rose again. And yet this Paul says, I am an apostle of Christ Jesus. How could that be? By the will of God. You know why? Because this Jesus showed up in an untimely way, Paul says. I am last and least of the apostles as one untimely born because in Acts 9, as we saw together, Jesus showed up on the road to Damascus and on that road not only converted Paul, but commissioned Paul as an apostle. When you read the Damascus Road encounter, I was reading this week and they, they made the point of saying that's not only his conversion, that's his commissioning. As an apostle, he's saying to Paul, I am going to send you now to the Gentiles, and I'm going to show you how much you're going to suffer for my sake. I'm going to send you, literally the word is there, I'm going to apostle you, Paul. That's what he says. And Jesus, by the will of God, made this Paul an apostle. This is why he can open in another place. In Galatians 1, he starts this way. Paul, an apostle. And then listen to this. Not from men, nor through man but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. What's Paul saying? I didn't become an apostle because a man selected me or some group of men chose me or a council ordained me or because a denomination selected me or because a search committee found me. I became an apostle by the will of God 
through Jesus Christ. So then this letter is not a suggestion from a friend. It's not advice from a peer or recommendations from a buddy. This letter carries with it the authority of an apostle who was chosen by the will of God. And that is spoken in the opening line, not only for Timothy's sake, but more than that, because here's why. You see, this letter, while it is personal, it's not private. It's a personal letter, but it's not a private letter. And the way you can see that is, if you have your Bible, would you look at the last chapter for a second? Just flip over to chapter 4 and read literally the last verse. Verse 22 will say, he ends the letter by saying, grace be with you. Now, might you notice that maybe in the top of your Bible, over that you is a tiny little two, a footnote. And if you look down at the bottom, the footnote will say, the Greek for you is plural. Meaning he closes his letter almost like he's from Texas, and he says, grace be with y'all. That's the way he ends his letter, which I hate that he's from Texas. But it's, it's that way. Grace be with y'all is the idea. What does that mean? That Paul wrote this personal letter to Timothy, knowing that the church behind him and we behind him still would be sort of hovering over Timothy's shoulder as he reads the letter. Because that means that the message is not just for Timothy, but that when Timothy starts doing the stuff of this letter, the church knows the apostle told him to. And more than that, that we who stand even further back, hovering over Timothy's shoulder, know that he's saying this to us. That means then what? The message of Timothy is for y'all, meaning you all need to endure. You all need to continue in and suffer for and guard and proclaim the gospel that was entrusted to you. This is for us all because these words come from Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. And as we read this letter over Timothy's shoulder, I want you to also notice that you immediately see the affection that Paul had for his son. Listen to it again in verses 2 through 4. To Timothy, who? My beloved child. Grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I pray for you night and day, constantly. And then what does he say? As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. Who's Timothy to Paul? He's not just a colleague, a co-worker, a fellow laborer who's got a hall down, uh, an office down the hall from him. He's not even just his brother in the Lord. Who is Timothy to him except his beloved child? And what does he say to this dear son of his as he comes on the track and puts his arm around this limping runner's shoulder? As he puts his arm around this hobbling young gospel worker, what does he say except Timothy... I think about you all the time. I pray for you constantly. In fact, night and day I'm praying for you. And I thank God every time I do. And as I pray for you, Timothy, I remember your tears. What does that mean? Meaning when they parted ways in Ephesus, when Timothy was left behind to deal with the heretics and the troublemakers and put out the fires that were all over in that church and fight off the wolves, as this father in the ministry, as his dad was parting, perhaps this young man broke down sobbing in tears. 
And Paul says, I remember your tears, and I long to see you. And he's hopeful that he will. In chapter 4, he'll say, please come and try to come before the winter. I long to see you because just seeing you would fill this old man's heart with great joy. I remember you. I pray for you. I remember your tears. I can't wait to see you. That's who he's writing to. And Sabmah wrote, we saw the inception of this relationship because we read through Acts together. We saw how it began. If you remember with me, Paul was going on his missionary journey and stopped in a city called Lystra. And if you remember, Paul got stoned to Lystra. In fact, they dragged him out because they thought he was dead. But before he left, gospel seed had been sown and there was a harvest of conversions in Lystra. And it's believed that among those who grew up from the ground in Lystra was a woman named Lois and a daughter named Eunice and a grandson named Timothy. So that in chapter 16 of Acts, when Paul makes his way back to Lystra again for a second time, all the believers there are talking about this young up-and-coming disciple named Timothy. Oh, you got to see how the gospel's taking root in this man's heart. And you got to see this young kid who loves Jesus. And Paul drafts and recruits Timothy to his team. And from there, what we watch is Timothy joins Paul in gospel ministry. They do ministry in Philippi together. Timothy is sent to Thessalonica to do ministry there. Then he goes to a troubled church called Corinth, and he's sent and left there to do ministry. Then he's with Paul in Rome as Paul writes some letters to the churches. Then he is left, last of all, to Ephesus, this place where everything is on fire, and Timothy is left there. Now, if you've ever heard about Timothy, what every commentator and every preacher and every scholar ever says about Timothy is this picture of this young Timid man, constantly in need of great encouragement to keep going, to press on. In fact, let me read you a quote by a commentator named John Stott. I, I, I was encouraged by this myself. He said, Timothy seems to have been naturally shy. If he had lived in our generation, I think we would have described him as an introvert. Young and weak and shy. And Stott goes on to say, if that describes you and God is calling you into his work, then this book has a message for all timid Timothys. And it's a wonderful to thing to think of how God used this young, perhaps weak, certainly timid man. I imagine when we get to Timothy, Timothy's going to come to all these people and be like, you all painted me to be such a wuss. While you were writing in your air-conditioned rooms, I was literally fighting wolves in Ephesus. But here it is. Look how God used him. And if you want to consider the worth of this young minister, hear it from Paul's mouth himself. I mean, if, if Paul is type A, Timothy is like type Z. But listen to how Paul speaks of this man. Philippians 2, listen to how Paul commends him. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served me in the gospel. There it is. I have no one like Timothy. I mean, everyone else is looking for their interests, but you know Timothy cares about you, church. And you know his concern is for Jesus Christ. And I have no one like him, and he has proven his worth. You know that. Like a son with a dad, Timothy has served me. And there it is again. Father walking his son to the finish line. 
meaning this call to endure, to not quit, to not bail on Jesus, to not tap out, to keep going, to persevere, to suffer, to guard, to continue in and proclaim. This is not coming from a stranger. This isn't coming from headquarters. This is a word coming from dad. Dad's the one calling you to keep going. When I think of this, I think back to when I was a kid. We used to have these church competitions, these church picnics, and there'd always be like races. That would be one of the competitions. And so all the kids in my grade would have to race. And I remember at these church picnics, as you can tell by my stature, I was not particularly fast. But I would always remember as that gun went off, my dad would stand to the side and I could still hear him screaming, up, 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 in this thick Indian accent. That's the only word he would say. But what does that mean? There was never a thought in my mind to stop. Why? Because dad was right there screaming for me to press on, to keep going, keep going, up, you have to keep going. There would never have been a temptation to bail, to stop, because dad's right there screaming out. And that's how this letter comes. This letter comes like an arm around a limping runner's shoulder, saying, son, I'm going to walk you to the finish line. Don't quit. Don't bail. Don't stop on Jesus or on ministry or on the gospel or on me. Press on. And in this verse, I want to end by just showing you verse 5. Paul, he not only remembers him in his prayers and not only remembers his tears, he remembers one more thing about Timothy. And in fact, this is the thing that causes his heart to thank God most of all. He says in verse 5, I am reminded of your sincere faith a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Paul says, I remember so many things about you. I remember you in prayer. I remember your tears. I can't wait to see you. Doing so would bring me so much joy. But I also want you to know, every time I pray to God for you, I thank God because of your sincere faith, Timothy. See, Paul had seen his fair share of men that started out of the blocks but quit along the way. In this letter, he names some of them. There's a guy named Alexander. There's a guy named Hymenaeus. There's a guy named Philetus. In chapter 4, he'll say, Demas, in love with the present world, has de deserted me. There's lots of guys that started. And somewhere along the way, they quit. But I have no one like you, Timothy. And you've proven your worth like a son to a father. And so he says, I remember, remember with thanksgiving your sincere faith, Timothy. He remembers this faith that, by the way, began with your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And now I am sure dwells in you as well. This is this beautiful line. You see, Timothy, he came from a home where there was sort of a mixed marriage. His dad was a Greek and most likely not a believer. So dad didn't know Jesus. Dad didn't love Jesus. Dad didn't teach Timothy the scriptures. Dad wasn't a great Christian dad for Timothy. Timothy had no great Christian father. But what God did give Timothy was a grandmom and a mom who loved Jesus. They'll show up again in chapter 3. Eunice and Lois are two of the most beautiful women in scripture. In chapter 3, it'll say, from your childhood, your infancy, you were acquainted through these two godly women with the scriptures, which were able to make you wise to salvation in Jesus Christ. You think of Lois and Eunice, these godly women that while Timothy was at her breast, while he was 
just bumping along on her lap. He was being spoken the scriptures over. He was being communicated the gospel, and he was being prepared for salvation through Jesus Christ. Hear me, Samarod, what an encouragement and a call to every Christian parent to emulate Lois and Eunice. That these little ones that line these steps would hear from us the scriptures from their childhood, that they might be acquainted with the scriptures that can make them wise to salvation in Jesus Christ. What a call Lois is and a charge Eunice is to us. Also, what an encouragement to every believer who is raising children without the blessing of a Christian spouse. What an encouragement that if you're doing this alone and your spouse doesn't know Jesus, doesn't love Jesus, and you have all the difficulties of a home and a marriage where you two aren't on the same page, what an encouragement to hear that from a home like that, through the witness of Lois and Eunice, God raised a Timothy. What an encouragement to us. And also, what a reminder that Paul and Timothy shared within themselves a relationship that went deeper than biology, that went thicker than blood. See, Timothy had no spiritual father. Paul had no biological sons. And God paired these two together so that one could look at the other and call him dad and the other could look at him and say, my beloved child. What an encouragement that God intends to fill your quiver full with spiritual sons and daughters whether or not he gives you biological ones, that you might pass on and pass out this faith as well. Timothy, I am so thankful to God for you. I remember you all the time. I remember that you have a sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your mothers, and now I am sure dwells in you. What, what seven mile road would it have been like for the heart of this young hobbling pastor this young minister, to hear a lion like Timothy say, I'm positive you're the real deal. Because that's what he's saying here. Timothy, you're the real deal. And it's because you're the real deal, verse 6 will say, you need to fan into flame the gift of God, and you need to endure, and you need to suffer for, and you need to guard, and you need to proclaim. Everything else he's going to say in the letter is based off this beginning. I'm thankful to God for you, and I'm thankful for your sincere faith. You're the real deal, Timothy. Therefore, don't quit. Don't bail. Don't tap out on Jesus or ministry or the gospel. Keep going. Endure. And to that end, he says, grace, mercy, and peace. From God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord to you. Because this will not be because there's some resources within Timothy to endure. That's why he needs grace upon grace. And mercy upon mercy. And peace from God to endure. So here's the beginning. I am thankful for you. I pray for you all the time. Seeing you brings me so much joy. And most of all, I am so thankful for your sincere faith. And it's because you're the real deal. Don't quit. Don't bail. Don't stop. Not on Jesus, not on ministry, not on witness, not on the church, not on me. That's what Timothy needed to hear. And reading over his shoulders, that's what we need to hear as well. Let's pray together.